Hi, my name is Adrienne Beatty, and I'm the Kids Ministry Director at Saltbox Church, where you can find a community who will walk with you into a deeper relationship with King Jesus. Well, good morning, all of our little ones here. You guys are going to get up, and I think you're going to head out, but here's what we're going to do. Adults, if you're in the room, extend a little hand towards our little ones. Lord Jesus, as they exit, we bless these little ones in the name of Jesus. Father, we ask that you would plant the kingdom of heaven in their little hearts, even today, as they watch the group dance and as they go to learn about you, that you would fill them with your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning, Drew and Zoe. I think you guys are doing our second Advent candle. I'm going to move my table over while you guys share with us. Thank you. Uh, good morning, church. This is, uh, my name's Andrew, and this is my wife, Zoe, and um, we'll be lighting the second candle. The second candle is the Bethlehem candle, which symbolizes peace. Isaiah 9, 6. For, un- for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Luke 2, 1 through 7. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Cornelius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Amen. Thank you, guys. Let's give Jesus a hand for all of that. Well, good morning. I'm glad you are here with us in this Advent season. Um, We are in the journey. We paused our, um, we've been going through the book of Acts, but we've paused that here for a moment, and we're um, looking at Advent through the lens of Nazareth. Um, I titled this morning, Hope Rising, and I actually put the scriptures behind us today because there's a number of them. Um, I'm going to break all the rules of preaching today and read too much Bible, Um, but that's what we do here. We share Jesus in and through the word. So this, he is Emmanuel, he is God with us. So I'm gonna start in Matthew two. Um, Hopefully I put it in order. Look at that, I did. I'm gonna start in Matthew two, then we're gonna take a look at Matthew four, almost on the same page, at least in my Bible. Um, Then we're gonna go back into Isaiah. Um, and we're going to see if we can tie all of this um, together. And it all sort of circles around um, this funny little village in the Middle East called Nazareth. Uh, so let me open it up like this. Um, if you don't know me, I'm Michael Mattis. I'm Abby and I pastor uh, Saltbox. 
Um, and by the way, I'm just, I'm kind of moved to some tears here watching our gals dance. Corey, I don't know if you're in the room. I see Chris back here, but Corey and Chris, uh, Corey has really led um, this, this dance troupe for many, many years. We've had two daughters um, dance with her. Corey and Chris, we love you guys and celebrate what God uh, does in and through you. Consider it a ministry and are happy to see you dance up here and uh, champion the name of Jesus. Thank you. Um, but if you, some of my story is actually very painful and very difficult. Um, I was, I came to Christ at a young age, if you don't know. This may be shocking if you've never been here, so forgive me. I'm not trying to shock you, but I think it's important. Um, especially as we look at hope rising sort of from darkness, from nothing today. Um, but I was a student speaker and leader um, for a very reputable mainline um, evangelical group over at UNCW uh, as an 18 and 19 year old. And um, through that evangelical Christian mainline, you know, everything was great theologically, came a group that ultimately became a cult. And I know we kick that word around a lot, kind of a cliche thing, but this is like clinically diagnosed in a court of law um, by, by a number of people as a cult. Um, and I was estranged um, from my family, my parents, um, for seven years. Seven years. I was living in, uh, so I, it started at 18, 19, and I got out about age 27. Um, and my parents had gone, you can only imagine as a 27-year-old, if seven years have passed and my parents haven't seen me or interacted with me, by the time I called home, they had written me off. I mean, I hadn't seen them. I hadn't interacted with them. I'd been hostile to them. Um, and so by the time God brought me sort of to my senses and um, he, he began to rise sort of hope in me, there was a dawning in me, there was a revelation in me, and he brought uh, me to my senses, much like Luke 15. Um, and you could even say spiritually some scales kind of fell from my eyes. And when I finally called home, um, my dad answered the phone and it had been so long and I had been so ugly and so disrespectful, I couldn't even call him dad. And I said, um, it's Michael. It was the first thing I said on the phone. And he said, Michael who? And my mom was in the background and she said, you know, honey, uh, who is it? And, um, and he said, Michael. And she said, Michael who? Like, it had been so long. They'd, you know, done even down to silly things, like writing me out of the will. And it, they, had, they had mourned almost the death and the loss of a firstborn son who had walked really closely with the Lord and with them. And suddenly what happens is this, this dawning happens inside of me. And I don't want to go into it. I really want to dig into our, our scripture here. But I'm going to sort of try to bring everything full circle. But this dawning happened inside of me where um, I actually had uh, several, um, I say this, very cautiously because it, I don't mean to elevate it, um, but I had several um, open sort of dreams or visions um, where God uh, was rescuing me from the kingdom of darkness. I was caught and he was bringing me out. And I think sometimes God has to speak that way when we're particularly hard of heart. So I don't actually tout that as like a, woo, this is a sign of spirituality. No, no, no. It's probably a sign of hardness of heart because I couldn't hear any other way. And so this dawning happens inside of me, this, this um, resurrection, if you will, this rising, um, and I come to my senses, and I've been recovering from that time for like 16 years now. And I would still say to you, I am still in a recovery journey. If you don't know you're in a recovery journey, you are. <clears throat> 
So let's open this up, and I want you to hold my story, because we're going to also take a look at the story of the Israelites, because the Israelites, at this point in time, is similar to my story, because there's been 400 years where God has not spoken. So you have this whole Old Testament in in our Bible, um, where God speaks relatively consistently to different people at different times, and it's recorded, but we hit this period of unique darkness. So there's 400 years where there is nothing from God. There is not one bit of um, writing or um, archaeological evidence. There's nothing that says these two words, God said, nothing. So for 400 years, there has been utter and absolute silence, like nothing. And people are questioning at this point, is Yahweh God real? Is the revelation of the Old Testament real? They've been waiting and assuming that this um, Messiah would come from all of the Old Testament prophecies. And they're assuming he's going to come looking like an earthly king. He's going to come and set up a kingdom like King David, because that's what it actually says in Isaiah. I'm going to take you there in a minute. But um, so, so they're watching, but hope has um, almost ceased to exist. Hope is nil. Hope is gone. Um, the the um, Israelites as a people are being ruled and ravaged in many ways by both Herod and then by Rome. And people are at an all-time low. They are taxed heavily. Um, they are often hungry. They are destitute. They are impoverished. And lo and behold, the angel Gabriel, Luke tells us, actually comes to this little girl by the name of Mary, who was probably 13 or 14 or 15 years old. And the angel Gabriel shows up to her and tells her that the Spirit of God is going to come on her and uh, make her with child supernaturally, um, not through a man, through God, and that she would um, conceive and give birth to this baby, and she was to name him Christ Jesus, and he would become the Lamb of God, taking away the sin of the world. And so there's this dawning of hope, if you will. There'd been darkness and there'd been depravity and there'd been sin and people had been ravaged and they had been abused and they had been hurt for so many years. And suddenly there's this dawning of hope in this funny little village of Nazareth with this little insignificant girl and she's betrothed to this guy named Joseph and you can only imagine in this day and age that when a girl would have been found to be with child and not having been married because she was just engaged the townspeople would have usually taken her out and stoned her so she is facing um, death she is facing the, almost the certainty that they would have taken out her out and killed her um, for being unfaithful to God and to a potential husband Joseph no doubt all of a sudden Mary comes and says oh I'm pregnant and it's by God and you can imagine what Joseph says yeah right. I mean God hasn't spoken in 400 years and this little girl comes and says I'm with child and it's by God. I mean, you can just imagine he's an upstanding man and he goes about then to put her away quietly because he's like, yeah, right. And an angel of the Lord, we're not going to read all of this today, that, this, that passage is in Luke, but an angel of the Lord appears to him and validates and vindicates Mary's story and says, you're to take Mary to be your wife and you are to have this child and you're to raise him as your own. All right, let's pick up reading. I'm in Matthew 2. I'm going to start in verse 19. And I'm going to go to verse 23. I'm going to open something. um, And then we're going to go through kind of the scriptures that are behind me. And we're going to see if we can tie this sort of idea of hope dawning, hope um, rising from darkness, from hopelessness. um, Because that is the nature of uh, this Yahweh God, this King Jesus. So Matthew 2, starting in verse 19. After Herod died, 
Um, now, Herod was the king that killed all of the uh, male babies under two in Bethlehem. If you don't know that, you can cross-reference that in Luke. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. So Joseph um, was warned, um, also in a dream, number of dreams here, and um, Joseph takes Mary and the baby Jesus, and they go down uh, to Egypt, and they've basically camped out or hung out in Egypt for about two years. We don't know what's happened there. We don't know all that's transpired. I'm sure that Joseph was practicing his um, craft of carpentry and stonemasonry and building, and he probably subsisted in Egypt. And then all of a sudden, he has a dream, um, and can you imagine, you've told us, God, that we're going to have this child, and this child is going to be Christ the King. That means King. So Christ Jesus, King Jesus. Um, and yet, here we are uh, now, um, been run out of our own country. We're living as aliens in another country. We're subsisting, um, barely probably eating, surviving, living. And we have no idea what you're even doing. And it takes two years before God shows up again. So here it is, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, excuse me, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. Okay, so Joseph gets up. Now, he just says the land of Israel. Now, Joseph would have known the Old Testament and it was foretold that the Christ child would be born in a little city called Bethlehem. Okay, that's foretold in the Old Testament. I'll take you there another time. But so the assumption would have been that Joseph would have gone to Bethlehem, which is just on the outskirts of Jerusalem. That would have been the idea. So Joseph gets up. Let's keep reading. Uh, verse 21. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. Verse 22. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. Now, Galilee is like um, hated and disrespected, okay? And it's partly hated and disrespected because you have the cities, the Decapolis up there. I don't need to get all into that. But there are a bunch of heathen Gentiles. And so good Jews living down in Jerusalem and the respected little community of Bethlehem would kind of stick up their nose and sort of sneer at the, almost like, if you use an American vernacular, it would be like the redneck hillbillies of Galilee, Okay, so even when the redneck hillbillies of Galilee came down into the area of Jerusalem, they talked different and everybody knew they were from Galilee. That's right. Okay, so keep going. <clears throat> First, uh, where was I? Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. Now, I love the book of Matthew. Matthew is so detailed. He was a tax collector, um, and he was so detailed in the way he wrote things down. But he says something next that's going to create a mess for us, and we're going to kind of deal with the mess. Can you imagine? You know I'm going to love to deal with a mess. Verse 23, and he went and he lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. Now, this is not Nazarite. There is a Nazarite vow in the Old Testament where you do some things like don't cut your hair and you taste no fruit of the vine, wine, or, um, or grape juice. And there's a, there's a whole um, sort of vow that goes along with that. This is different, totally different. has no, no relation. So Nazarene here is more like, um, uh, like if you're from Wilmington, you're a Wilmingtonian. I, this is really funny because I was born in Boston, but I only lived in Boston like six or eight months. So when people say, where are you from? Well, I'm technically accurate. So I go, I'm from 
Boston, but I've lived here, I'm 42, and I've lived here 41 years. And so my wife, Abby, is always like, why don't you just say you're from Wilmington? I'm like, well, I'm not. I'm, I was born in Boston. You know, but, so I, okay, Wil am I a Wilmingtonian? Probably. Okay, 41 years. That's, that's a lot. Okay, so he will be called a Nazarene. Now, problem right here that's going to lead us through these scriptures, and we're going to see if we can bring all this together. <clears throat> there is nothing in the Old Testament whatsoever that we can find about Nazareth. There's not. It's super difficult. And there's a huge like schism in the academic community over this passage and what in the world it means. And if I like tied it really quickly together simply for you, because I believe it's actually a combination of things. Um, but here, is the, here are the three options because it says, uh, so was fulfilled um, what was said through the prophets. That's the, all the Old Testament prophets. Um, he will be called a Nazarene. So option one is that, um, and if you want to make a note, we're heading to Isaiah 11.1. 1. I think it's behind me. Um, but in Isaiah 11.1, 1, there's a word called shoot um, or branch or netzer. Netzer in Hebrew. And you're going to have to just hang with me and journey here because I'm going to bring all this around. So um, Netzer means branch or shoot um, or olive, um, olive shoot. So you get the idea of something that, uh, like a tree um, that has been cut down. Uh, so have you ever taken a, um, I'm a landscaper, if you don't know that, like by trade. I love plants. I love dirt. It never talks back to me. I just go out there and work and everything's great. But if you take, in our culture, uh, or our context, I guess, if you take a crepe myrtle tree, and if I took a chainsaw and I flush cut a crepe myrtle tree, so from the ground's level, the crepe myrtle tree is now flat, what comes out in the spring? A shoot. Okay, that's the idea here. So Netzer is this shoot. So it is like something has been cut down. Something has been, all hope has been removed. Um, darkness is now prevailing. Out of nothing, though, comes Something, a shoot. Okay, so hang on to that. So Netzer um, is probably what Matthew, I would say, is prophetically looking into the Old Testament text, and he's saying um, Jesus is the shoot, and I'm going to unfold that in just a minute, so just kind of hang on to it. The other thing is in Aramaic, which is likely what Jesus spoke. So we're reading this, which was originally written in Greek. Old Testament's written in Hebrew. Jesus, though, spoke in Aramaic. The word for Nazareth and the word for shoot are identical. Netzer, Nazareth, Netzer, shoot. So the idea that, that it is probably... Um, that, that uh, Matthew is foretelling, and he's looking at the Old Testament, he's looking at the way it was originally written, which we're going to go to in just a minute, and he's saying this is why Nazareth was uh, foretold through the prophets. Now, some people propose at this point that Matthew has an additional source that we don't know about. I suppose that's possible, but probably unlikely. Um, and then the other idea that I'll unfold and what we're going to read in just a minute is that because Nazareth was such a village that was despised and rejected, that he is connecting how despised and rejected Jesus was to Nazareth. Okay, make sense? Are you going to hang with me? Now, we're going to Matthew 4, verses 12 through 17. Mine's on the same page. I'm reading out of the NIV. <coughs> When Jesus heard that John had been in prison, so now Jesus is now an adult, 
Um, he is just, uh, there's this, all these silent years in Jesus' life. He's being released into ministry now. He spends most of his life actually in this little know-nothing village of Nazareth. Other than two years in Egypt and three years in ministry, he spends the other years, the other 28 years or so, in this village of Nazareth. So when he heard that John had been put in prison by Herod, by the way, um, Antipodus, Herod, there was three Herods, but Herod Antipodus, he withdrew to Galilee. Now, I'm not going to open this, but if you're in your Bible and you've got a pen, I write all over my Bible. I recommend you do the same, but uh, circle Galilee and just write down Luke 4, verses 14 to 30. That's not behind me, but that is what, that is fulfilled when he withdraws to Galilee, that is fulfilled right here. And Jesus actually stands up. You're just going to have to hang with me a second. Jesus stands up um, in Nazareth, and he reads from the prophet um, Isaiah. And uh, afterwards, foreshadowing kind of the cross and Jesus' um, crucifixion, the townspeople drag him out to a, t- to a mountain called Mount Precipice. I wish I could take you there today because I'd show you exactly where it happened. But Mount Precipice, and they try to throw Jesus off, and Jesus escapes. Okay, so now, pick it back up. He withdrew to Galilee, verse 13, leaving Nazareth. Now, why did he leave Nazareth? Because they threw him out. They tried to kill him, foreshadowing the cross. Now, let me say something very clear here. Can we, as New Testament believers, refuse the presence and power of King Jesus in our life? Yes. Don't miss this. The town of Nazareth rejected the king of kings and lord of lords because they didn't like him. He didn't fit their mold. He didn't measure up to what they thought he should. And they literally kicked him out. Can churches kick out the king of kings? Yes. In fact, I don't know who it was. I think it was actually Tozer who said, um, A.W. Tozer, amazing writer if you've never read him. But I think he said something along the lines of many churches could actually um, go on with all of their um, Uh, organizations and all of their little systems and all of their things and kicking out the very presence of the Holy Spirit of God and nothing would change and no one would even know. Now, can a people, can a person, can a family, can a church actually despise and reject the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Yes. Yes. It's very important. Okay, so he went and lived in in Capernaum. Now, Capernaum is on the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. The apostle Peter lived there with his wife. He probably stayed with the apostle Peter, and it says, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulon and Naphtali to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Okay, keep reading. Verse 15, the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. That's why it's hated. Why? Because Gentiles live in Galilee. The people living in the darkness have what? Seen a great light. Go back to Michael's life. What happened to me? I began to see a great light. Okay, 400 years of silence. Little Mary, Joseph, Nazareth. All of a sudden there is a dawning. 400 years of darkness and there is a light that begins to come on. Okay, have seen a great light. Of those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Okay, now we're heading back to Isaiah. So go ahead and turn to Isaiah 9. If you're scrolling on your phone, you you get to do it very easily. If you're turning, you're going back left in your Bible. I want to speak to two things here as I try to tie this together. Um, 
1948, this is really important. In fact, if you're here and you're a doubter or you're an atheist or you have questions about faith and Jesus and this book and the Bible and all that, tune in right here. Because in 1948, two Bedouin shepherds are wandering around the Dead Sea in Israel and they wander into some caves. They probably went to either spend the night or even relieve themselves. I'm not trying to be gross. I'm just telling you the truth. And so they wander into these caves and in the back of these caves, they discover in these somewhat broken jars all of these scrolls tons of scrolls. There were actually um, 1,500 scroll fragments found in 11 caves, um, and researchers have assembled 981 different manuscripts from these caves, including the entire book of Isaiah. Now, this is why this is important. Hang with me. There in 1940 and 50 and 60, 1940, 1940s, 1950s, 1960s, there was this huge line um, of liberal thought that said a bunch of people got together post Jesus's um, ministry and his death and his resurrection and they put the, the book of Isaiah together in arrears in order to validate, validate and vindicate the Christian hoax. You understand me? Do I need to say that again? Okay, I'll say it again. Uh, there was this huge line of liberal thinking. This is so important. There's this huge line of liberal thinking and liberal scholarship that is saying the book of Isaiah is a big hoax and it was written in arrears. So it was written after Jesus lived, after Jesus died, after Jesus was resurrected. They would have said um, so-called resurrected. Um, but so their point was, this is all a big farce. It's all a big hoax. And there was a lot of Christians who were falling into this path of thinking. And so guess what it did? It really destroyed a lot of the ability of our faith to hold water. So now, 1948, two Bedouin shepherds, they roll into a cave and they discover the entire book of Isaiah. And so the entire book of Isaiah is called the Dead Sea Scrolls in a little place called Qumran. And they discover these scrolls and they are dated 750 years before the birth of Christ. So we know beyond a shadow of it, it's the oldest manuscripts of the Old Testament. There's a bunch of passages. It's almost the entire um, book of Isaiah. But here's what we know. The earliest forms of the Bible were found there, and that proved the veracity and the fact that Isaiah was written 750 years before Christ. Okay, pause. The Qumran scrolls, or the Dead Sea Scrolls, did not prove that God existed. They did not... Um, it could not prove with 100% certainty uh, that Scripture was God-breathed or that uh, the Isaiah foretold prophetically the coming of Christ. But here's what it did. It absolutely refuted and destroyed this liberal um, scholarly thought that said Isaiah was a hoax. It destroyed it. And so what that opened up is what happened in the late 1940s with a guy named Billy Graham. Some of you know Billy Graham. Some of you might have even seen him in person before he passed away. But the Billy Graham revival happened, and you probably wouldn't even know this, but a lot of the theological table was set because of the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls because they could no longer refute the veracity of Scripture. So what happened is across the nation, um, there is a revelation that, oh my goodness, the Old Testament Bible prophecies are real. They predated Jesus, okay? So then the other thing that happened um, is if you fast forward a couple of generations in the 1970s, you got this Jesus movement. Um, I don't know if my parents are here today. Um, they may or may not be, but they actually came to Christ in the Jesus movement. And I, I bet if I had you raise your hands, in fact, I see Jim and Diane over there, y'all probably came to Christ in the Jesus movement, yeah? 
Terry, did you come to Christ in the Jesus movement? Before then, okay. So, but here, here's what happened, is as this thing began to erupt, it, it, because this line of thinking that said Christianity in the Bible didn't hold water and wasn't real is utterly destroyed, all of a sudden people can now look at the book of Isaiah and open up and go, oh my goodness, this is real. It predated Jesus, and there is an openness now in which all of us can enter in to embrace the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You follow me? Now, it's just like the way God does it today. If you stand um, at the top of a mountain, or if you stand at the top or the bottom of a waterfall, if you look at the ocean, if you stand in creation, you, for me, I can't help but go, there is a creator God, and I am not him. Like creation testifies, the fingerprints of God are everywhere. And so just like God preaches to us as believers or unbelievers, the revelation of him, you just go stand in an operating room and see the complexities of the human body or how birth happens and life happens. God is a God who has created a pathway. And what I love about him is he is not gonna force anyone ever, but he welcomes us. And anytime there has been a serious um, uh, disagreement with the God of the Bible, with the veracity of Scripture, he has always come in and destroyed it, creating the opportunity for you and I, believers all over the world, to give their lives to King Jesus. You follow me? Some of y'all are like, Michael. Oh, you're in the deep end. Okay, I am. <clears throat> Let me make one other note here, because I think this is just important. Um, a similar thing was happening um, in the 19... Uh, 60s, um, and people were saying that Pontius Pilate never existed. And if Pontius Pilate never existed, if you know your script, you know your Bible, if you don't know your Bible, you're going to have to catch up. But if Pontius Pilate never existed, then what probably didn't happen? The trial of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus. And so there was this other huge debate. Well, Pontius Pilate never existed. Therefore, um, you, you know, Jesus probably didn't exist. He didn't die. He wasn't resurrected. And they tried to refute the whole thing. Big, huge move that happened in the 60s. Well, lo and behold, in a place called Maritime Caesarea, they uncovered the Pilate stone. And it says the name... Pontius Pilate. So again, it's like every time in history there's been these huge moves to, to um, break the veracity of Scripture, break the reality of Scripture. There's often an archaeological breakthrough that proves it and establishes once again that Scripture is incredible. Is credible. Our faith holds water. It's actually an intelligent faith that is not a blind faith. And it opens up the possibility for you and I then to surrender our lives to the kingship of the Lord Jesus. You follow me? Okay. <clears throat> Let's keep going, because that's kind of, a, kind of a side. All right, so I'm in Isaiah 9, verse 1 through 3. <clears throat> Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 3. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. Who's in distress? Nazareth. Israel, the nation, I mean, the, the stress was all over Israel at the time. I would probably say we're still in distress. Yes? Okay. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations, or Galilee of the Gentiles, as Matthew wrote, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. Okay, here it is. The people walking in darkness. Who's in darkness? Nazareth. 
the nation of Israel, 400 years of silence. Who's in darkness? Michael Mattis, stuck in a cult. Who's in darkness? Maybe you today. You hear me? Because there's, there's probably two forms of dawning that happens in the life of a Christian. The first form is when you dawn to the revelation that you're not God and you want to give your life to God. You surrender your life. You're born again. You're saved. There's a number of ways that we could say that. That's the first dawning that happens in the life of a, of a Christian. But then there is a daily or almost a regular pattern of dawning where you go, oh my goodness, I had no idea that was true about myself. Lord Jesus, would you forgive me? Would you heal me? Would you help me? And you have, maybe sometimes you have to go and ask people's forgiveness, but there's the journey. I'd call that like the Jesus journey. It's a sanctification journey, but it's the process where you daily take on the character and likeness of Christ. Now, if you're in Christ and Christ is in you, you are actually a saint. Sometimes we don't live like it or act like it, and we still have the capacity to sin. Okay, let's keep going. Um, <clears throat> a light has, on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy, and they rejoice before you as people rejoice at harvest. Okay. Now, flip over. Um, I love this, this image of a light dawning. Um, there's something so powerful here. I, I, that is the only way I can understand even, I'd call it my conversion, or the Lord coming and rescuing me from where I was living. But, but I want you to think even of a sunrise. So as I was writing this, I was reflecting on some of the most potent sunrises in my journey. And I love the sunrise. Um, if I could have a house that faced the water and watched the sunrise every day, that's what I would do. I'm up early. But one of the most potent sunrises I ever remember is I'm in the Okavango Delta in Botswana. I'm driving from Victoria Falls down to Moan, Botswana. I've been, I was a bush guide for a mission organization. And I'm by myself. I park my truck in the bush. I'm sleeping on top of it. And it's about like 5, 10 in the morning, and a herd of elephants has engulfed my truck. And I wake up, and there's this huge dawning. The sun just appears. As I'm waking up, there's elephants all around me. I'm a little bit scared. I'm like, oh my goodness, these things are bigger than my truck. And all of a sudden, boom, there's this dawning on the eastern horizon. The sun begins to rise. And the red of the, um, the savannah, the Okavango Delta, it just like ignites red everywhere. And there's this huge moment where the sun begins to dawn, the sun begins to rise. And it was much like my moment when I came um, to our return, if you will, to faith in Christ. When the scales began to fall off my eyes, God came to me and he woke me up. There's this dawning. There's this rising of a revelation, just like I think this little Mary and this Joseph who are together, and there's a dawning of hope. The angel Gabriel appears. You're going to carry Jesus, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, Emmanuel, God with you. You're going to carry him. There's this dawning. Okay. Isaiah 11, verses 1 and 2. Flip over. You're going to the right two chapters. Here it is. If you have a Bible and a pen, it says a shoot, circle shoot. A shoot will come from the stump of Jesse. That's Netzer, Nazareth. And I think that's what Matthew is saying when he says, when in this Matthew 2.23 that we just read, he is saying a shoot, um, a, a, and it's an olive shoot is going to come from this stump. Now, you got to get your head around this church because this is the God that takes what has been cut down. Okay, um, a stump. Like I told you, I'm a landscaper. I'm, 
I'm okay with a chainsaw. Um, and and if, I, if, if I take a tree and I flesh cut it and it's, it's, it's equal with the earth, there, it is dead, it is gone. There's very few trees that will actually sprout. And all of a sudden, this says, um, a shoot will come from the stump of Jesse who would have lived uh, up near um, Nazareth. And from his roots, a branch, Netzer again, will bear fruit. Now the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and of fear. Now, my Bible has a capital S there. Does yours, spirit? Okay, here's what that means, just quickly. In the Old Testament, capital S still means Holy Spirit of God. It's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. When you see capital S in the Old Testament, it is a word um, which translates ruach. It's the ruach of God. So his spirit is going to rest. So at the the beginning, you actually have God um, resting over the waters in creation, and he creates with a word, um, ruach. In the New Testament, it becomes pneuma. The Spirit of God dwells. Um, the Holy Spirit of God overshadows us, fills us. It's the pneuma of God. All right, so hang on. <clears throat> the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Who is him? Jesus, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. Now, I'm going to jump back to Luke 4, because I want to read this. It's not, on my, it's not on my notes behind me. Forgive me. Luke 4, verses 18 and 19. Jesus is quoting Isaiah. I would say to you that Isaiah was his favorite scroll. Um, But here's what it says. The spirit of the Lord is on me. The pneuma of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, and set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The reason I'm reading that is because it's right after that that the, um, the townspeople in Nazareth drug him out to Mount Precipice and tried to kill him. What rested on Jesus? The pneuma of God, the ruach of God, the spirit of God rested on him, anointed him. Okay. Now go with me to Isaiah 53. I think that's up there. Look at that. It is. And we're going to see if I can put all these dots together. Some of you don't think I can, do you? If you don't, pray for me. Lord, help Michael. Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot. Who's he here? Jesus. It's foretelling the coming of Christ. Shoot, it's a slightly different word, but it's the same. It means a shoot. It means a branch. And like a root out of dry ground. Now, Jesus, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Where did he grow up? Nazareth. Nothing beautiful comes out of Nazareth. In fact, Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nobody liked Nazareth. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by others, just like Nazareth. A lot of scholars think he's talking about Nazareth here. Isaiah, when he wrote this, he's a man of suffering. He's familiar with pain. He's familiar with what it feels like to have everything cut down. He's familiar with what it feels like to live in abject darkness. He's familiar with what it feels like to grow up in anonymity, to grow up in poverty, to grow up hungry. 
He's despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering, familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hid their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Again, who are we talking about? Jesus, the way they treated him. Verse four, surely he took up our pain. Whose pain? Yours and mine, the people of Nazareth, the people of Israel. He bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. Verse five, but he was pierced for our transgressions. How was Jesus pierced? Literally with a spear on the cross. You can cross-reference it and read it if you'd like. He was crushed for our iniquities. I think that's the internal crushing of the wrath of God where he extinguished the wrath of God that was intended for you and I on the cross. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, like Michael stuck in darkness, like Nazareth, like the nation of Israel who had rejected the King of kings and Lord of lords. And God laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. It's interesting, all four of the gospels give an account of Jesus not opening his mouth before Pilate. He was led like lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. The veracity of Scripture foretelling in Isaiah what would happen, and we could go through all the prophecies of the Old Testament, foretelling what would happen in the New Testament is absolutely mind-boggling. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? Okay. Let me see if I can bring this together. This is the God who chooses the things that have been cut down. This is the God who is familiar with pain. He knows sorrow. He knows what it means to be afflicted. He knows what it means to be abused. He knows what it means to be hurt. This is the God that is the God of the stump, of what is hopeless. He is the God of actually when everything is dark, when there is no dawn, when there is no hope. And I would begin to open up today and say to you, if you are here today and you would go, Michael, I feel like I've been cut to the root. Welcome. So is King Jesus. If you're here today and you go, Michael, I've been despised and rejected and of ill repute through no fault of my own, welcome. So is King Jesus. If you're here and you'd say, I've been acquainted with suffering like the people of Nazareth, and maybe you're here today and you go, "Um, I've actually rejected Jesus like the people of Nazareth. I've despised him. I've got good news for you today. You can repent, you can turn to him, you can give your life to him. This is why he came. And he will move back to you, God with us, Emmanuel. If you've been pierced by your own sins as I have been, if you've been crushed by your own iniquity, if you've recognized the depths of your own sin, the punishment you deserve, I've got good news. King Jesus paid it all and he made a way for you and I to be totally free. He made a way for people like me to wake up, to find grace, to find repentance by faith alone, through grace alone, by Christ alone. He made a way. If you're here today and you go, Michael, my marriage is dead. It is cut to the stump. I would say, listen to me. 
begin to speak faith and life into it because this is the God who takes the stump that is dead and out of it he brings a netzer, out of it he brings a shoot, out of nothing he brings something of life. This is the God who when the darkness is the most dark, there is a dawning, a, a light has dawned. Behold, Emmanuel is rising. This is the God that in your area of greatest difficulty and greatest suffering, he wants to actually breathe the life of Christ. And if I could look at each of you in the face today and speak to you, I would say, find the area that feels most dead, most cut to the quick, most hopeless, where you've given everything up. And I would say, begin to speak to and believe by faith in Christ Jesus that he wants to take what is dead and resurrect it to life in Christ. Christ. I am convinced that the kingdom of God is so much bigger and more pervasive. And in the area where you've actually given up, it might be the area where he wants to cause it to grow up, to sprout, to netzer. You might say today, Michael, I'm estranged from a family member, a child, a parent, a brother or sister. I would say begin to believe by faith that God is going to transform something because he brings life from death. He's the God that brings something out of nothing. He's the God that brings the dawn to our broken world. You might be sick this morning. You might be struggling. You might be believing or struggling to believe for the light to dawn. But whatever that means, I would say to you this morning, hope is rising. I've got a friend who's sitting at the back of the auditorium, probably. His name's Rob Allen. He's a dear brother, and he's in a cancer battle for his life. Rob and Sharon Allen. And I want you to hear something, because God has not yet healed him. And if you talk to him, he'd say, Michael, it's a win-win. It's a win-win. Either I get promoted to Jesus, or God heals me. And I'm watching something when I sit and talk to Rob. I was just at a men's breakfast with him on Thursday. And I listened to Rob talk. And I thought, this man is living under the holy overshadowing of God. He is experiencing Emmanuel, God with him. He is experiencing a personal revival. Are we praying for Rob to be healed? Yes. Are we going to keep praying? Yes. Do we know that God will? No. He may promote Rob to eternity, hear me on this. Ultimately though, Rob is going to be healed in the eternal presence of Jesus, but hear something so powerfully. This man is experiencing the resurrection life of Jesus. He is living under a personal revival and renewal because he has bowed his knee in the darkest hour of his life. He is fighting for his very life. He is sick and all of a sudden, the netzer of God, um, the, the, the resurrection of God, the shoot of God, the hope of God is rising in and through his life. And I would say to us today, as a church. Listen to me. We can become a church who actually believes in the things of the kingdom and you begin to let go of your expectation of how things should turn out and you begin to embrace the God that is Emmanuel, God with us. Wherever your area of greatest hurt, greatest pain, greatest hurt, even abuse, where you have been dejected, where you have been rejected, bring that thing to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and let him resurrect something beautiful out of it. That's, this is the kingdom. This is Emmanuel, which is God with me. Say it, God with me. 
So when you come to him in your area where you've been cut down, where you're hopeless, where there is, it just seems like you are stuck in the darkness, if you will trust and if you will wait and if you will keep going, there will be a shoot of life because this is the kingdom. There will be a dawning. There will be a breakthrough where the scales fall off the eyes and you can see. Now, if I could call us to anything this morning, here's what it would be. I would actually call you as a body of believers to look at the area of greatest pain and greatest hurt and greatest hopelessness in your own life and begin to believe that God is gonna bring life out of what feels like death. Can you do that? I think I'm preaching better than you're responding. Here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna do a closing song. And here's what I would love for you to do. If you're sitting there and you're like, the Holy Spirit's tapping on your heart. You're going, I got this area. I don't believe he can break through. I don't believe he can move. It's dead. It's cut to the root. There's no hope. I want you to give that to him. And I want you to begin to believe with everything in you that this is the God who is the Redeemer, who is Emmanuel, who raises things up, who is the Netzer, who the light has dawned who the shoot is going to come forth from what is nothing. And if that is you, I'd love for our prayer team to come down as we do this closing song. But if that is you and you want to engage him, there is nothing magic about coming forward and standing in an aisle, okay? But there is something when you demonstrate externally um, something that is going on inside of you. You hear me? There's something powerful. It's a transaction between you and God. But if you are sitting out there and you're going, there's this thing, whatever your thing is in my heart and in my life, and I want to believe and I want to grasp that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords would resurrect his life and power in this thing, I I would call you to do something you haven't done before. Maybe get out of your seat. And even as we close, just come stand down here. If you can't do that, if you're too embarrassed, stand in your seat and raise your hand, close an eye, do something that would signify externally, God, I believe you and I'm gonna partner with you to believe that you have a new dawning. Emmanuel, Christ with us. Guess what, guys? This is Christmas. This is Christmas. Emmanuel, God with us. Come on, let's worship the Lord. We have three of our prayer team down here. If there's any more, y'all come on down. If you're there and you wanna come down here and say, God, I wanna partner with you to believe for something that seems dead, then get out of your seat and come on down. Just stand here next to me.
pray that as you send us out today that we would know your voice that we would sense your presence that you would fill us with joy that the joy of the Lord no matter where we're sitting or what we're looking at would be our strength Father I pray that we could celebrate wholeheartedly this Christmas season Emmanuel God with us Father we love you we praise you and we worship you in Jesus name Amen Thank you for joining us today We are grateful to walk with you on your own Jesus journey to grow into a deeper relationship with King Jesus. For information to join us in person or online, check out saltboxchurch.com. Just Jesus, nothing more, nothing less.